0: Very, very special. Grab your Bibles, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Good to see everyone tonight. While you're opening there, I want to tell you about the Kelly family trying to find and purchase a home in Indiana. When you're buying a home, you are usually referring to numbers in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so we would be walking around talking and occasionally one of the sets of little ears would hear... The dollar figures that we were throwing around to each other, and you know Bethany and I, we'd be saying stuff like, you know, this this one's two fifty. These are Indiana prices. This one's two fifty. These ones three. This one's three twenty five. This one's three fifty. And our list, Alyssa, our oldest, um, smartest child, says like three fifty. Let's do it, you know and. And she's like, let's let's get this. This is only 350 bucks, and and this happened on a couple occasions, and that's because she doesn't understand the difference between 300 dollars and 300 thousand dollars. And when we explain it, it just makes a little bit more sense to her that it's just a lot more than 300. And um, we were living in a house out there that uh, we bought for more than 300 dollars, and and way less than, you know, a million dollar California house. And um, we had a hailstorm go through and our roof needed to be repaired. And so this crew comes through and like just rips our roof to shreds and puts a new one on like in one day or two days. And in the aftermath, there's like all sorts of these little roofing nails everywhere. If you've had this done before, maybe you had the same experience. Little roofing nails everywhere, even after they went through with a magnet and picked everything up. And we were just finding them. And I'm like, man, we run around out there barefoot. Like, we, we need to pick these things up. And so, all right, kids, everyone come together. Come out. And I, I pulled one out and I said, you see this nail? I will give you a quarter for every roofing nail you bring to me. So it was glorious. I just sat out on the porch, put my feet up, grabbed a glass of lemonade, and the kids were just running around collecting roofing nails. It was beautiful until like they started like bringing lots and lots of roofing nails. And pretty soon I'm like, why did I say a quarter? Like I should have said a penny. And, and pr- after a few minutes of this, I'm like, all right, guys, daddy's going to look too. And I'm like running around like throwing elbows, like <laughs> I think there's a big pile over there, you know, and then there's, sure enough, there's not. And I go and I get like, you know, I, I found like a, a mound of them that someone had stashed somewhere. So I it was way more worth it for me to start uh, vigorously collecting than it was for me to pay them. Re, or fast forward to last week when I got all the kids together in the backyard. I said, you see this? This is a dead leaf. Um, let's pick up the leaves together and I will pay you... $1 for every 20 minutes you work. And Bethany thought that was a little stingy. I thought it was fair. If minimum wage in California is like 11 bucks, like if they work for an hour picking up leaves, that's not going to be the equivalent of an 18-year-old or, you know, uh, an adult working for one hour. So we're paying kid prices here. And so they work for, they work for 20 minutes. And they're like, like, ah, oh, how long has it been? And I'm like, you know, seven minutes, keep working. And they, they, they work for 20 minutes, and I give them a dollar. And at the end of it, they're like, that, that took forever, and all I got was a dollar. And I share these stories because, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to dial in, like, how much should I pay my kids in these different circumstances. I'm still figuring out the paying your kids thing, but they're still figuring it out too. We just, we laugh about these stories because we have a lot more understanding of the value of money than our kids do. But we have not arrived, I don't think, in terms of our understanding of the value of money. Uh, We can laugh about our kids and their, you know, small understanding, but um, we have to be careful because just knowing more about money doesn't guarantee that we think properly about it. Understanding the value of a dollar doesn't guarantee we have a godly perspective about the dollar. And in fact, I think we can grow in our understanding of money and its value to the point where we even idolize or overvalue money, one of God's many creations. And so it's important for us as individuals to pause occasionally and think about money. Jesus talks about it a whole lot in the Bible. And it's important as married couples every once in a while to huddle up and put our minds together to think about money together. And so that's what I want to do tonight. The book of Ecclesiastes takes the issue head on and talks about it and I think challenges each of us to make God and living for God our ultimate lifetime goal, not making tons of money and and amassing lots of wealth. So when you become a Christian, when you open up God's word, the paradigm shifts and we look at money and the value of money a little bit differently than the rest of the world. So let's see what Ecclesiastes has to say. Let's see what Solomon, he had some experience with money. Let's see what he has to say about it. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see in a province uh, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For high, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And if we just stop right there, we can take this down for point number one. Don't bank satisfaction on money. That's point number one. It says right there in verse 10, money will not satisfy you. If you love money, you're not going to be satisfied with it. So don't bank your satisfaction on any created thing, especially not money. Verses 8 and 9 seem to indicate that money corrupts. People who have lots of money are easily corrupted in their ambitions and desires. In verse 10, it just says it flat out, money doesn't satisfy. In verse 11, let's keep reading. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? It's the sense that money brings on more expenses. It increases uh, those who eat them. You've got more mouths to feed and more responsibility uh, under your under your care. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the guy who works hard sleeps well, but the rich person has trouble sleeping. So if you amass tons of wealth, it's not only going to Leave you empty and unsatisfied, but it also could lead to many sleepless nights, Solomon says, probably from experience. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Money can even be kept to your own hurt. Let's turn in our Bibles to the New Testament to First Timothy chapter 6. Paul has something to say about money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, it says, For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You might get the resources you need to get yourself into lots of trouble. You might even have enough money to indulge in sin that you're tempted with. It's fleeting. And the passage says that money, uh, the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. We understand money is a tool. It can be used for good or for bad money itself. Isn't inherently wrong or wicked or sinful the same way that a baseball bat is not inherently uh, a a wicked device. You can use it to hit a home run. You can use it to hit someone in the head. And uh, you know, tools are designed to be used for good, but obviously we can take them and use them for evil and bad. And and money is no different. So that's point number one. Don't bank your satisfaction on money. If you flip to Matthew chapter five. Jesus talks a lot about money throughout the uh, throughout the Gospels. But here in Matthew chapter five, uh, make it chapter six, he says the familiar words: "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal." And so he gives a reason, he gives a warning, and then a reason why. Well you can accrue stuff here on earth, but moth and rust are going to destroy it. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the real reason, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants your full attention, your full devotion, your full heart, and where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So, Don't bank your satisfaction on money. Make sure that Christ is the treasure of your life, the the person that you are living for, the thing that you are pursuing. Um, That's point number one. Money is fleeting. It's temporary. If you look back in Ecclesiastes chapter five, he says um, in verse 15, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for the toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so also shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Point number two, remember, your money is temporary. So Jesus says, moth and rust are going to destroy. And here Solomon says, naked you came, naked you're going to return. You you came to this world with nothing, and you're going to leave this world with nothing. This is the reality of an old, wise man imparting wisdom and and godly perspective. It makes me think when we take our kids to Chuck E. Cheese, (laughs) They sit there and and they get, you know, they make like 100 uh, tickets or 200 or 300, you know, they score big on one of the games and they get 500 tickets or whatever, whatever the number is, there's like Tootsie Rolls or like those plastic frogs that they, that kind of bounce and there's like a top that you spin or those are like the, the class of toys that my kids usually earn enough tickets to get and they sit there and they labor like like stalled, like deer in headlights. What do I want to spend my hundred tickets on? And usually there's tears involved. Someone's going to cry about something. The whole process takes ten times longer than it should. I stand there rolling my eyes thinking, in two days, this toy's going to be in the garbage, you know. You're going to completely forget about it. You are laboring over which piece of junk you want to take into our house, right? Uh, that, that's my uh, desensitized perspective on the Chuck E. Cheese situation. And, and, and that's the reality of most kid toys, and it's the reality of uh, most adult toys too. Whether it's a car, whether it's a house, you know, whatever it may be, we sit here and we labor, and we do. We, we, we labor over how to spend our tickets. And at the end of the day, we're making decisions of which piece of junk do I want to buy. It's going to last maybe for, not for two days, maybe for two years or for 20 years or for maybe for a lifetime, but at the end of the day, we're not taking it with us. It's going to be in the, in the garbage can when we're done, and uh, I don't want to, obviously, it's, it's important when we make financial decisions and we spend money, we need to be wise, but at the end of the day, there's a sober reality that scripture confronts us with and that is that money is very much so temporary. We laugh at my our kids' perspectives on money and their, you know, their minuscule understandings of, of values. But when we think about eternity, we are babies. <laughs> you are an infant. You're 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 years old, you are an infant in light of eternity. And we all are. We're just, we're babies. Um, (laughs) And our our short lifetime is going to be over before we know it. And so how how are we spending our money now uh, in light of this eternal reality? We ought to spend some time thinking about that Talking about that as as couples, making family decisions in light of this paradigm-shifting reality. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. In verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here you have this eternal perspective coming to bear in another one of Jesus' teachings. Here's a, a man who stored up all sorts of possessions and didn't realize that he didn't have any time to spend it. His soul was required of him that night. It was game over. Reality of eternity sets in. At that point. The question in that situation is, how how did I live? In hindsight, looking back with what I stored up, with what I had, how, how did I live? That's a frightening question. And it's better to ask tonight, while you have an opportunity, while you have time, better to ask yourself now, how am I living and how should I live moving forward? in light of the the temporary nature of life here on earth and in light of uh, eternal realities um, beyond this life, how should I live now moving forward? That has significant impact on the way we view our money. Look at verse 17 back in Ecclesiastes 5. This gets me. Look at uh, 5.17. It says... Here's the the guy who stores up money. All his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. So often, in order to get rich, a person needs to live like he's poor, and then it's gone before he can enjoy it. So the, the person who gets rich, you know, always turning off the lights, always eating in darkness, always skimping on this, saving on that. And he lives like he's poor for his lifetime. And he gets to the end of it, having lived as if he were poor and then not being able to take any of his money with him to the next life. He was poor in this life, and then he's got nothing in the next. It's such an ironic verse in verse 17. He eats in darkness to save power, he has vexation, there's this discontentment, there's this grief, there's always this, you know, stress for whatever's next. There's sickness, he works himself dead, there's anger, he's always frustrated, he's always pushing harder, bigger next, and he lives a poor, empty life. And Solomon proposes a solution, but before we get into it, I, I want to just pause with the bleak picture that Ecclesiastes leaves us with right now, and identify some marriage implications. Um... We've identified money doesn't satisfy, and even if it did, it's only temporary. So, this we're beginning to have a biblical perspective on how we look at money and the value of a dollar. When you make family decisions, do you think with a biblical, with this sort of biblical perspective about money, or? Does money drive the decision-making process? And whatever makes financial sense is the right decision. Or are there other factors that you bring to bear in making decisions? What are those other factors that you bring to bear in thinking through family goals, family decisions, family plans? Don't let money be the only criteria for a wise choice. It is one criteria, absolutely, but a biblical perspective says it's not the only one in light of the realities we've identified. (sighs) To what extent, uh, how do you think about giving? How do you think about your investment in eternity when you make decisions about spending money and using what god has given you how do you think about contribution to the church what is that thought process for you and for your family do you give do you give to things that are aimed at the what matters then in eternity It's really cool for us to be a part of a church that is um, uh, convicted about fulfilling the Great Commission, and even to the extent that we've launched this campaign of Campus 2020 with planting five churches in the next eight years, um, optimizing our campus here for better ministry here, and... um, Launching a Bible Institute to do more strategic training. I'm excited that we are here. I'm looking for my wife. There she is. I'm excited that we are here at at a church where we're so intentional about these these goals. And so when we give to the church, we know that our money is going toward these goals that I think are direct applications of the Great Commission. Uh, So I just want to challenge you on that front to think through your contribution to the church in light of these biblical principles and as soon as I bring up that concept and some of these other crazy claims that I've made um, you might be thinking about conflict that enters your marriage when you start talking about these kinds of things or conflict over money that has come up in the past. This is a hot topic. This is an issue that, that does create controversy when you put two people in the same household to make decisions together about this stuff. I think we, it's important that we understand money is a stress-inducing concept. We know, we know that, but just being aware of it is helpful. We can have conflicts and fights in our marriage about this thing called money, The Bible helps us to have a perspective on that thing. Let's get on the same side of the table and view money together um, and try to build a unity where we agree with each other about financial things. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it's easy to have financial unity of mind, but it is something that we need to work for, work toward, in our marriages. The Bible talks a lot about it, and so so should we. We should pray about it. We should uh, study it. We should talk to people about it. Talk to your Thrive group about it. This is We're here to talk about these things together, so let's do that. Now, on to Solomon's proposed solution in verse 18. He's painted this picture. It's bleak. It's empty. It's going to leave you with nothing at the end. It's Very much so in line with the book of Ecclesiastes, and and look look what he says in verse 18. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. He goes on.